2: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk.
3: Put your hand on the Bible, please. Some swear to tell truth, the truth, truth nothing but the truth, save God. Sit down, please.
0: Now, Mayala... suppose you... tell us just what happened,
3: huh? Well, Sir... <coughs> sir. I was sitting on the porch, and he come along. Well, there's this old shiv rope in the in the
1: yard, and I said, "You come in here, boy, and bust up this shift rope, and I'll give you a nickel." So he, he come on in the yard,
3: and I go in the house to get him the nickel, and I turn around it. And before I know it, he's on me.
1: And I fought and hollered, but he had me around the neck, and he hit me again and again. And the next thing I knew, Papa was in the
3: room was standing over me, hollering, who done it? Who
4: done it?
0: Thank you, Mayor. You're with the sentence.
3: Miss Nayala. Is your father good to you? I mean, is he easy to get along with? That's tolerable. Except when he's drinking. When he's riled, has he ever beaten you?
1: My paws never touched a hair on my head in
3: my life. You say that you asked Tom to come in and chop up a what was it?
1: A chifferau?
3: Was that the first time that you ever asked him to come inside the fence? Yes. Didn't you ever ask him to come inside the fence before? I? Well, can he remember any other occasion? No. You say he caught me, he choked me, and he took advantage of me. Is that right? Do you remember him beating you about the face?
5: No. I don't... Recollect if he hit me.
3: I mean, yes, he hit me. He hit me. Thank you. Now, will you identify the man who beat you? Most certainly will. Sitting right yonder. Tom, will you stand up, please? Miss Mayella, have a good, long look at you. Tom, will you catch this, please? Thank you. Now then, this time, will you please catch it with your left hand? I can't, sir. Why can't you? I can't use my left hand at all. I got it caught in a cotton gin when I was 12 years old. All my muscles were tore loose. Is this the man who raped you? Most well, certainly is. How? I don't know how. he done it. he just done it. You have testified that he choked you and he beat you. You didn't say that he sneaked up behind you and knocked you out cold... but that you turned around... and there he was. you want to tell us what really happened? I got something to say... and then I ain't gonna
1: say no more. He took advantage of me. And if you find fancy gentlemen... Ain't gonna do nothing about it, then you're just a bunch of lousy, yellow, stinking cowards. The the whole bunch of you and your fancy ass don't come to nothing. Your mammon and your Miss May Ellen, it don't
3: come to
2: nothing, Mr.
1: Vance. Sit
4: down (laughs) there. who doesn't love a good court scene context of white supremacy, gusty renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. This is the cows book club. Today's date is Thursday, October 22, 2020. So I have been told this is our seventh book study session on Isabel Wilkerson's *Caste*, The Origins of Our Discontents. Uh, we are picking up <clears throat> on chapter 15. Wowie. We started off with Harper Lee's. To Kill a Mockingbird. Now there will be slight things. That. Will let me know that perhaps just maybe uh, we are doing what we are supposed to be doing, doing correct work uh, to work against racism, white supremacy, just maybe little clues and things. So. The whole time with White Dog, I said our, our timing has just been astounding with all of that, even with this book, she had the whole chapter on dogs last week. And last week, she had the, the sentence, one of the more repugnant lines in the book. She writes, the case system had given Charles Stewart, white racist killer in Boston, uh, given Stewart cover and endangered the life of Carol DeMati Stewart as it had for white women in the Jim Crow South. I'll stop right there. This was her going over Charles Stewart white killer in Boston killed his white pregnant right wife blamed it on a black person. Right. Uh, And so this is another illustration of how racism Jim Crow endangered the life of white women. Are you flipping serious? I mentioned To kill a mockingbird when we read this tripe last week and said, are you serious? There are tons of examples. I think I also mentioned Emmett Till, uh, Carolyn Mosby Bryant, uh, Carol Mosby Bryant, the white woman racist who lied, admitted lying on Emmett Till uh, and perhaps even accompanying the white killers the night that he was castrated and murdered. Uh, The presence of white women in the system of white supremacy, lynchings, racism, all of it is generally minimized and or obfuscated, totally ignored. This happens all the time. We talked about this for years, but I mentioned to kill a mockingbird last week and I said, hey, they got that big scene. Uh, The white woman who you heard, Mayella, she sexually assaults a black male. Her white father catches her. Then she lies about it. They all lie about it. and Prosecute this black male, Tom Robbins, who ends up being killed. His life is endangered. And that, that's what I said right there. They do all that nonsense talking about white male rapists. And I said, this book totally ignores white women as racists. It's right in To Kill a Mockingbird, the white woman, sexual assault, forcing herself on a black male who is literally disabled, helpless to do anything about this, tries to escape and ends up being killed by white men. Does this sound like what you heard? She's in the courtroom being prosecuted in this trial where they're going to prosecute Tom Robbins, a black male. Does she sound like her life is endangered? Sitting on the stand lying. Don't you have to take an oath, put her hand on the Bible of white Jesus and then sat there and lied on a black male? He raped me took advantage of me and if you can't do anything about it then you're not worth anything you're not even a white man really that's how i decoded what she said you're not even a white man if you can sit up here and do all this yes ma'am and miss mayella and all the rest of it we i have accused this nigra of raping me now what are you all gonna do about it and they, yes ma'am they went right ahead convicted and then killed him And Atticus Finch is a racist. That was the other. The part two, they waited like 50 years before they came out with the second publication, the sequel from Harper Lee. Everyone thinks Atticus Finch is so great and not racist. And I said, whoa, 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 let's analyze his. We had total racist, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird last week. They made me read it in school, made us watch the movie and everything. I think they have done that for years, decades in this part of the world. One of the most popular books in the history of the so-called U.S., Lo and behold, Isabel Wilkerson mentions To Kill a Mockingbird this very week. Within the first five minutes of the book, she mentions that they're classic novel. Let's pay attention to what she has to say about it since you've heard one of the more dramatic scenes from the book slash film. We will get started. Isabel Wilkerson cased the origins of ...of our discontents. Context of White Supremacy, Audio Segment 1.
1: Chapter 14 The Intrusion of Caste in Everyday Life A father and his young son were out at a restaurant in Oakland... ...on one of their precious days together... ...now that the mother and father had separated. The little boy ordered what he thought he wanted... ...but when the food came... He said he just wanted to drink his juice. The father had been worried about the effect the disruption in the family might be having on his son and wanted to keep the same stability and order in his little boy's life. He wanted to hold to the same standards they had always had, of showing gratitude for the blessing of food and eating what the universe had seen fit to put before you, of keeping to the manners they had established when they were all together. Mainly, he wanted his son to get his nourishment, didn't want to return him to his mother hungry, as he surely would be if he filled his little stomach with sweet juice and snacks. He remembered the times he'd filled up on sweets and had no space left for mealtime. What he couldn't tell his son at the moment, but would have to tell him later when he was big enough to understand, was that he would have to grow up respecting authority. One day, He would no longer be an adorable little toddler, but would be a black, teenager, or grown man, and respecting authority, following the rules, could mean his very life. This was his only child, the most precious human in the world to him. The boy was so sweet-faced, innocent, and free. How could he tell him that the world, his country, saw him as a threat? When exactly is the best time to break a child's heart. Should a parent clip them a little at a time? Spread it out to spare them the pain of a single blow? Should a parent sit them down and get it over with? You could argue that the sooner a child knows, the safer, more prepared he will be. Maybe a parent should hold off as long as he can, give his child the longest possible chance to be a child. He'll have the rest of his life, decades to live with reality, adjust himself to the truth. Maybe the most loving thing to do is to wait. Wait until something happens. Somebody drops the N-word on him at the playground, or a teacher checks him for running down the hall, but not his white schoolmates, and he knows it's wrong and wants to know why. Back in 2014, Tamir Rice was 12, when officers shot him within seconds of their arrival as he stood in a Cleveland park playing with a pellet gun, despite the fact that Ohio was an open-carry state. And it is a common occurrence for boys to have toy guns, an all-American thing to do. Tamir Rice happened to be the same age as the fictional Gem when the beloved fictional father, Atticus Finch, gave him an air rifle in to kill a mockingbird the very scene from which the title comes. Lots of American boys play with guns, are given guns, and aren't killed for it. Tamir Rice died before he could ask why. This father in Oakland didn't believe in guns, and that wasn't the issue anyway. The issue was his son's life and what the father could do to protect it. The challenge for a parent in the subordinate caste is to calculate the precise and optimal moment to break the truth to a child before the caste system does it for him, to figure out how to stretch their innocence until the last possible moment before it is too late. Another father, an immigrant from West Africa, had to find a way to push past his sorrow to break the news to his little boy that he could no longer be a child that he could not jump and dart and shriek like the other children. He would have to tell his son that it was too dangerous. They were in America now. The father in Oakland was a respected professor at a local college. In fact, African-American history was his field. He would figure it out when the time came. That moment was weighing on him, but that day was not today. The father looked back at his son and told him he needed to go ahead and eat his vegetables first, like Daddy said, and then he could drink his juice. The little boy scrunched his face and shook his head and began to cry. A woman at a nearby booth had been listening to their exchange. She was an older, grayish-blonde woman from the dominant caste. She scooted from her booth and walked over to the table where the father and son were sitting. The father could see the shadow of her form moving toward them. The woman stopped and stood over them. She leaned toward the little boy and told him, You drink your juice if you want to. It's okay to drink your juice. The woman did not address or acknowledge the father. She focused her attention on the little boy as she stood there. The father was beside himself. A perfect stranger had gotten up, disregarded a parent, and told a child to disobey the parent right in the parent's face. The woman had crossed so many boundaries it was hard to process. Something had made her feel entitled enough to enter into the private space of people she did not know and veto a father's decision regarding his own son. This was Oakland, bright blue home of Huey and Tupac, where such phrases as gender nonconformity and microaggressions are part of everyday language. The woman would not have gotten up if she didn't perceive she had a right to. Had she done this to other parents? Would she have breezed past a white father, ignored him to tell his son to do precisely what the father had just told him not to? The father held up his hand like a traffic officer, signaling a car to stop. Ma'am, you need to go sit down, the father said. Don't come to my table. I don't know you. The woman looked stunned at the rejection, but turned around and went back to her booth. The father had a hard time enjoying his own food after that. He would remember this moment long afterward. The United States has a centuries-old history of people in the upper caste controlling and overriding the rightful role of lower-caste parents and their children, the most extreme of which was selling off children from their parents, even infants who had yet to be weaned from their mothers, as with fillies or pups, rather than human beings. One of them, remarked an enslaver, was worth $200— the moment it drew breath. This routine facet of slavery prevailed in our country for a quarter millennium. Children and parents denied the most elemental of human bonds. Even when children were permitted to remain with their parents, caste protocols undermined their authority and punished them if they tried to protect their own children. A mother in Louisiana was administered twenty-five lashes for countermanding an order given her son by the white mistress who owned them. Several of the most gruesome whippings and tortures were administered on enslaved men who intervened in cases of violence against their wives or children at the hands of an enslaver or overseer. Thus enslaved parents could offer their children little shelter or security from the frightening creatures that lorded over them, historian Kenneth M. Stamp wrote. Nor could they protect themselves. But if the upper caste did not see the evil in this, the lowest caste children could see it. Once, when an overseer tied a woman up and whipped her in front of her children, the frightened children pelted the overseer with stones, Stamp wrote and one of them ran up and bit him in the leg as they cried for him to let her go. The caste system may have treated them as cattle or machinery, but the children responded instantly as the human beings, the dominant caste, refused to see. It was only in the mid-twentieth century, with the protections arising from the civil rights era, that black parents had legal and political recourse to shield their children from abuse, or to call into account harm done to their children at the hands of the state. But the essential contours of the hierarchy remained intact, the modes of expression having mutated with the times. Modern-day caste protocols are less often about overt attacks or conscious hostility and can be dispiritingly hard to fight. They are like the wind, powerful enough to knock you down, but invisible as they go about their work. They are sustained by the muscle memory of relative rank and the expectations of how one interacts with others based on their place in the hierarchy. It's a form of status hypervigilance, the entitlement of the dominant caste to step in and assert itself wherever it chooses, to monitor or dismiss those deemed beneath them as they see fit. It is not about luxury cars and watches, country clubs and private banks, but knowing without thinking that you are one up from another based on rules not set down in paper, but reinforced in most every commercial television show or billboard, from boardrooms to newsrooms to gated subdivisions to who gets killed first in the first half hour of a movie. This is the blindsiding banality of caste. Every day across America, wherever two or more are gathered, caste can infect the most ordinary of interchanges, catching us off guard, disrupting and confusing, and potentially causing mayhem for anyone in the hierarchy. These are scenes of caste in action. The doorbell rang at the home of an accountant from the dominant caste in a wealthy suburb of a Midwestern city. The accountant and his family had only recently moved into the neighborhood. Through the glass sidelights of his front door, he could see a woman, an African-American woman, there on his landing. He knew exactly what this meant. The dry cleaner in town offered its customers pick-up and drop-off, So he went to get the clothes that needed cleaning and then opened the door to hand the armload of tousled clothes to the woman waiting out front. The woman stepped back. Oh, I'm not the dry cleaner, the woman said. I'm your next door neighbor. I came over to introduce myself and welcome you to the neighborhood. The woman was the fashionable wife of a prominent cardiologist, exceedingly upper class, yet labeled subordinate cast on sight. Still, to someone who had just moved next door to her, they would both have to recover from that one. A college professor in Chicago had just returned from a bike ride and picked up his mail in the lobby of his apartment building off Michigan Avenue. He was African-American in his thirties, patrician of face, still in his helmet and cycling gear he stepped onto the elevator en route to his floor and, barely noticing the other man on the elevator with him, began going through his mail. He saw something of interest and unsealed one of his envelopes. The other man was horrified. You're supposed to be delivering the mail, not opening it. This seemed to have come out of nowhere, and the college professor looked up and saw that the other man was white but didn't fully register the accusation was just going about his day, and gave an honest reply. Oh, I want to see what's inside, the professor said. The other man looked even more stricken now, shaking his head in disgust, mistakenly believing he was witnessing a crime in progress. The professor got off on his floor, and only later did it occur to him that he had been taken for a delivery boy in his own building an assumption so ludicrous he hadn't bothered to consider it in the moment, which left the dominant caste man convinced that he had just seen a black messenger brazenly break open an actual resident's mail in full view of another resident. This is the self-perpetuating mischief of caste. The phone kept ringing at the civil engineer's desk. He had deadlines to meet and projects bearing down on him. But over and over, the phone broke his concentration and wasted his limited time. The engineer was from the dominant cast, and so, too, was the man pestering him. On the face of it, the intrusion would seem to have nothing to do with cast. Here was a white contractor calling a white engineer for answers about a project underway. The engineer was a supervisor with a general idea of the project, but the project was not his. It belonged to another engineer on the team, as the contractor well knew, one who happened to be African-American and a woman. The white contractor had been told to go to her with any questions he had, but the contractor had ignored her, ignored protocol, and had gone to the dominant caste engineer instead. The white engineer answered the contractor's questions at first, to be polite and move things along. But the phone kept ringing, and it was disrupting his own work, and it was hindering the project in question. The black engineer could hear this unfold in front of her from her cubicle next to the white engineer's. From her desk, she could hear it every time his phone rang, while hers sat mute and silent. She could hear the white engineer's impatient replies, to questions that both of them knew should have come to her. The white engineer grew agitated with disbelief. When the contractor called the next time, the white engineer let him have it. I indicated to you from the beginning that you need to talk to D about day-to-day matters, the white engineer said. If you have a problem with that, we'll have to find another contractor for the job. The minute the white engineer hung up, The black engineer's phone rang. On an ordinary workday, the caste system had pulled a dominant caste man into its undertow. It had drained him of time and disrupted the operation. He found himself in an unexpected fight against an invisible foe, forced to take a stand for his colleague and against, perhaps unbeknownst to him on a conscious level, the caste system itself. If there is anything that distinguishes caste, however, it is first, the policing of roles expected of people based on what they look like, and second, the monitoring of boundaries, the disregard for the boundaries of subordinate castes or the passionate construction of them by those in the dominant caste to keep the hierarchy in place. After the 2016 election, The surveillance of black citizens by white strangers became so common a feature of American life that these episodes have inspired memes of their own. Videos gone viral, followed by apologies from management or an announcement of company-wide diversity training. People in the dominant cast have been caught on video inserting themselves into the everyday lives of black people they do not know and calling the police on them as they wait for a friend at a Starbucks in Philadelphia or try to enter their own condo building in St. Louis. It is a distant echo of an earlier time when anyone in the dominant caste was deputized, obligated even, to apprehend any black person during the era of slavery. With the resurgence of caste after the 2016 election— people in the dominant caste have been recorded calling the police on ordinary black citizens under a wide range of ordinary circumstances, with videos cropping up almost daily at one point. In New Haven, Connecticut, a woman called campus police on a graduate student at Yale University who had fallen asleep while studying in the common area of her dormitory. Officers demanded her identification even after she unlocked the door to her dorm room. You're in a Yale building, an officer said, and we need to make sure that you belong here. In Milwaukee, a woman called the police on a corrections officer whose key fob had malfunctioned as he tried to open his own car door. A man called the police on a software engineer who was waiting for a friend outside a condo building in San Francisco. As the white man briefed the authorities from his cell phone, the man's little boy, uncomfortable with his father's actions, begged him to hang up and let it go. A woman walking her dog stood and blocked a marketing consultant from getting into his own condo building in St. Louis. She demanded that he show proof that he lived there before she would step aside. When he walked past her, she followed him into the elevator and onto his floor to see if he, in fact, lived there. In the video that the man took as a precaution, she can be seen tracking him all the way to his apartment, checking whether he was a resident even after he unlocked his door to go inside. And a woman began to stalk a black man in Georgia when she saw him out with two white children. From her car, The woman trailed Corey Lewis, their babysitter, as he drove from a Walmart to a gas station and to his home after he did not permit the woman, a complete stranger, to talk with the children alone to see if they were all right. Lewis, a youth pastor who runs an after-school program, started recording the situation on his cell phone. In it, the children can be seen calm and unfazed buckled in their seatbelts in the back of his car. His voice is strained and disbelieving. "'This lady is following me,' he says in the video, "'all because I got two kids in the back seat "'that do not look like me.' The woman called 911 and asked if she should keep following him. She continued to trail him, even though she was told not to. By the time Lewis got home, A patrol car had pulled up behind him, an officer heading toward him. Jesus have mercy! What is wrong with this country? A woman outside of the camera frame cried. The officer told the children, a six-year-old boy and a ten-year-old girl, to step out of the car, and Lewis's voice grew tense. The outcome of this police encounter and his very safety depended on what those children said, and he asked them to please tell the officer who he was. Please, he said to them. Satisfied that Lewis was, in fact, their babysitter, and that the children were okay, the officer, just to be safe, called the parents who were out at dinner. It just knocked us out of our chair, the children's father, David Parker, told the New York Times. Afterward, a reporter asked one of the children, ten-year-old Addison, what she would tell the woman who followed them that day. Her father told the Times her response. I would just ask her to, next time, try to see us as three people, rather than three skin colors, because we might have been Mr. Lewis's adopted children. These intrusions of caste... Would seem to harm the targets more than anyone. Given the widely publicized attacks and shootings of black citizens at the hands of police, most Americans know by now that calling the police on a black person can carry life and death consequences. Frivolous calls squander public resources and distract police from actual serious crime, to the detriment of us all. Beyond that, When any citizen is disrupted in the midst of everyday life and responsibilities, it is, in fact, a societal disruption, a tear in the daily workings of human interaction. These people are a part of the American economy, and when they are interrupted, schools and businesses and institutions suffer an invisible loss in output as their workers get blindsided from their tasks. These intrusions... Serve to reinforce caste by derailing lower caste people, subverting their work lives in an already competitive society, imposing additional burdens not borne by their dominant caste colleagues as they go about their work, as occurred to me in Michigan some years ago. I could hear footsteps behind me, but paid little attention. This was an airport, and there were footfalls and roller bags all around. I had just landed in Detroit on an early morning flight from Chicago for interviews I needed to conduct as a national correspondent for the New York Times. I'd already lost an hour going from Central to Eastern time, and I was thinking of all I'd have to do in the space of the next eight hours. If the first interview was at 10.30, and if it took me 40 minutes to get downtown, maybe more since this was rush hour— I needed to get straight to the rental car to make this work. Any delays in the day's interviews, and I might not make the flight back to Chicago that evening. I thought to myself that I'd worry about that later and just get to the Avis bus as soon as I could. I thought about how it always seems that the shuttle you're looking for is the one that just pulled off, and no matter what company you've booked, the one you need is always the last to show up. I was walking fast, because I always walk fast, and I was heading to the sliding glass doors in the direction of the shuttle stop when I heard them. The footsteps were closer and faster and heading toward me. Why would anybody be heading toward me? It was a man and a woman. It happened to be a white man and a white woman, the woman's light brown hair swinging just above her shoulders as she ran. They had a parka and corduroy look about them, and both were out of breath as they reached me. We need to talk to you, they said, walking alongside me. I could see the shuttle bus lane through the sliding glass doors and buses pulling up and was not fully registering whatever it was they were saying. Why are you in Detroit? What are you here for? I'm on business. I'm here for work. I was thinking that I did not have time for whatever travel survey they were conducting, and now I could see that Avis was on schedule. The shuttle bus was pulling to the curb. People were queuing up to board. I have to catch my shuttle bus, I told them as I walked out of the terminal doors. Where are you coming from? They asked. One on each side of me now. I just flew in from Chicago, I said. "'nearing the clot of people in suits and overcoats "'boarding the shuttle bus. "'Is that where you live? "'Why are you asking me this? "'I need to get on the bus. "'We need to know if you live in Chicago "'and what you're doing in Detroit.' "'The last of the passengers were climbing on board. "'The doors of the bus were wide open. "'The driver was looking down at me and at them. "'The man and the woman stood there holding up the bus,' "'holding up the passengers, holding up me. "'What is this for?' "'We're DEA. "'We need to know where you live, "'how long you will be in Detroit, "'and exactly what you're doing here.' "'This was too preposterous to comprehend. "'The Drug Enforcement Administration? "'Why in the world were they stopping me "'out of all the travelers at the airport? "'This was a day trip, so I didn't have luggage.' like a lot of business travelers between cities, close to each other. I was in a suit, like everyone else, coach bag slung over my shoulder. Covering the Midwest as I was at the time, I used to tell people that I catch planes like other people catch the subway. Airports were a second home to me. How could they not see that I was like every other business traveler boarding the shuttle? The people on the bus were checking their watches and glaring down at me through the windows as I stood at the steps. The driver shifted in his seat, and I could hear the shake of the engine, the snort of the brakes, transmission about to shift, the driver's impatient hand on the door pull. I blurted out what they wanted to know so that they would leave me alone. I live in Chicago. I'm here for the day. I'm a reporter for the New York Times. I need to get on this bus. We will allow you to board. We will have to ride with you. I was shaking now as I climbed onto the shuttle, its air thick with the scorn of fellow travelers. I looked for an empty seat, people pulling away as I sat down. This whole exchange had delayed everyone on the bus, and for all that anyone could see, it was because of a woman, a black woman, who probably didn't even belong with real business travelers and might be a criminal to boot. The two agents took seats directly in front of me, staring and assessing, their eyes never leaving me. Twitter did not exist, and there were no cameras on cell phones to go into video mode. The bus was filled with business people, white people, or, I should say, white business people. I was the only African-American on the bus, and one of the few women, and there were two agents surveilling me and my every move. The other passengers glared at me, and at the two agents, and back again at me. I was in utter disbelief, too shocked even to register fear. It was a psychic assault to sit there accused and condemned, not just by the agents but by everyone on the bus who looked with contempt and disdain. Seeing me as not like them, when I was exactly like them. A frequent flyer on business like anyone else on the bus, early on a weekday morning, having just flown into a major American city and needing to focus on the work that I, like them, was there to do. I wanted to proclaim my innocence of whatever it was that all of them were thinking. When you are raised middle class and born to a subordinated caste in general, and African American in particular, you are keenly aware of the burden you carry, and you know that working twice as hard is a given. But more important, you know there will be no latitude for a misstep, so you must try to be virtually perfect at all times, merely to tread water. You live with the double standard, even though you do not like it. You know growing up that you cannot get away with the things that your white friends might skate by with, adolescent pranks or shoplifting on a dare or cursing out a teacher. You knew better, even if you were so inclined, which I wasn't and never have been. I needed to regain my composure and clear myself of the accusation of their presence. They hadn't believed I was a reporter, so I decided to be conspicuously what I was. I fished my pen and notebook out of my bag. I figured nobody could stop me from taking notes. It was a natural and protective reflex for me, like breathing. I had a captive audience bearing witness to my performance of emergency journalism. In silence, I looked across at the agents and with my quaking right hand made notes of what they were wearing, what they looked like, how they were looking at me. They hadn't expected this and they turned to look out of a window and down at the floor. It was a long ride to the car rental lot. Now they felt the sting of inspection as I jotted down everything I could about them, and in that moment, I took back some fraction of the power they had taken from me, proved who and what I was to anyone watching, or at least, that was how it felt to me at the time. Soon the bus pulled into the Avis lot, and I took a deep breath. They had ridden all the way from the airport, trailing me, and I had no idea what the next step would be. When the bus came to a stop, I stood up like the other passengers. The agents looked up from their seats. Have a nice day, they said. And it was over just like that. Except it wasn't. I somehow made it to the rental counter and somehow got the keys to a car, but I don't remember any of it. What I recall is getting turned around in a parking lot that I had been to dozens of times, going in circles, not able to get out, not registering the signs to the exit, not seeing how to get to Interstate 94 when I knew full well how to get to I-94 after all the times I'd driven it. Now, in the car, away from the agents, I was beginning to comprehend the seriousness of that encounter— only now able to admit my terror. The other business travelers were likely well on their way to their appointments, perhaps annoyed at the delay, but able to make preparations in their heads for their meetings, maybe get a coffee on the way. This was the thievery of caste, stealing the time and psychic resources of the marginalized, draining energy in an already uphill competition. They were not, like me, frozen and disoriented, trying to make sense of a public violation that seemed all the more menacing now that I could see it in full. The quiet mundanity of that terror has never left me, the scars outliving the cut. We are told over and over again in our society not to judge a book by its cover, not to assume what is inside before we have had a chance to read it. Yet humans size up and make assumptions about other humans, based upon what they look like, many times a day. We prejudge complicated breathing beings, in ways we are told never to judge inanimate objects. Chapter 15 The Urgent Necessity of a Bottom Rung It turns out that the greatest threat to a caste system is not lower caste failure, which in a caste system is expected and perhaps even counted upon, but lower caste success, which is not. Achievement by those in the lowest caste goes against the script handed down to us all. It undermines the core assumptions upon which a caste system is constructed, and to which the identities of people on all rungs of the hierarchy are linked. Achievement by marginalized people who step outside the roles expected of them puts things out of order and triggers primeval and often violent backlash. The scholar W.E.B. Du Bois recognized this phenomenon in his research into what happened after the end of the Civil War. The masters feared their former slaves' success, he wrote, far more than their anticipated failure. Decades after the Civil War, the entire world was at war and well into a fourth year of trench combat that was tearing Europe apart. The year was 1918, after the Americans had finally sent in their troops. The French welcomed the reinforcement during World War I, had badly needed it. The French began commanding some of the American troops, and it was then that the problems began. The French were treating the soldiers according to their military rank rather than their rank in the American caste system. They were treating black soldiers as they would white soldiers, as they would treat other human beings, having drinks with them, patting their shoulders for a job well done. This rankled the white soldiers in an era of total segregation back home, and this breach had to be put to a stop. American military command informed the French of how they were to treat the black soldiers, clarified for them that these men were inferior beings, no matter how well they performed on the front lines, that it was of the utmost importance that they be treated as inferior. The fact that military command would take the time in the middle of one of the most vicious wars in human history to instruct foreigners on the necessity of demeaning their own countrymen suggests that they considered adherence to caste protocols to be as important as conducting the war itself. As it was, the white soldiers were refusing to fight in the same trenches as black soldiers and refusing to salute black superiors. The American military communicated its position, and French commanders, in turn, had to convey the rules to their soldiers and officers who had come to admire the black soldiers and had developed a camaraderie with them. This indulgence and this familiarity read the announcement are matters of grievous concern to the Americans. They consider them an affront to their national policy. In apprising their officers of the new protocols, French command noted the contradictions given that the black American soldiers sent us have been the choicest with respect to physique and morals. Still, in trying to translate the rules of the American caste system, the French command gave this directive. We cannot deal with them on the same plane as with the white American officers without deeply wounding the latter. We must not eat with them, must not shake hands, or seek to talk or meet with them outside of the requirements of military service. More pointedly, the French officers were told, we must not commend too highly the black American troops, particularly in the presence of white Americans, it is all right to recognize their good qualities and their services, but only in moderate terms. Later in the final months of the war, an African-American soldier, Private Burton Holmes, was grievously wounded in a hail of machine gun fire and heavy German artillery in an ambush of his unit in September 1918. He managed to make his way back to the command post to exchange rifles because the one he had been given was malfunctioning. Commanders wanted to get him to the hospital for treatment, but he refused and rejoined the fight with a backup rifle. He continued to fire upon the enemy until his last breath. Another African American in Company C, Freddie Stowers, crawled into enemy shelling and led the assault on German trenches. He, too, died on the front lines, defending France and America. White officers who had witnessed their bravery broke with caste and nominated both men for the Medal of Honor. But this was the height of the eugenics era, when black inferiority was near universal convention in American culture. The government refused to grant the medal to either soldier. The award intended for Holmes... Was downgraded to a lesser citation, and the recommendation for stars was lost for half a century. These actions were in keeping with societal norms that people in the lowest caste were not to be commended even in death, lest the living begin to think themselves equal, get uppity, out of their place, and threaten the myths that the upper caste kept telling itself and the world. Imagine, Dr. Jeff Gusky, a physician who, decades later, took an interest in the case, told the Army Times in 2018. How powerful this would have been in the American press if word got out that there were two black soldiers who died in this ambush and were both nominated for the Medal of Honor. A generation later, during the Second World War, there was continued resistance to the lowest caste rising from its assigned place, even in the most mundane of endeavors. One day in the spring of 1942, white Army officers happened to assign Black soldiers to direct traffic in Lincolnton, Georgia, as an Army convoy passed through. It caused an uproar in town. The sight of Black men in uniform "'Standing at an intersection halting white motorists "'apparently sent some residents over the edge,' "'wrote the historian Jason Morgan Ward. "'After the war ended, in February 1946, "'Sergeant Isaac Woodard, Jr. was riding a Greyhound bus "'home to North Carolina from Augusta, Georgia, "'where he had been honorably discharged, "'having served in the Pacific Theater.'" At a stop along the way, Woodard asked the bus driver if he could step off the bus to relieve himself. The driver told him to sit down, that he didn't have time to wait. Woodard stood up to the driver and told him, I am a man just like you. Woodard had been out of the country and away from Jim Crow for three years, had served his country and taken on a degree of assertiveness and self-confidence that most Southern whites were not accustomed to, nor prepared to accept, in the words of the Southern author and judge, Richard Gurgle. The driver backed down for the time being, told him to go ahead then and hurry back. But at the next stop, outside Aiken, South Carolina, the bus driver notified the police. There, the police chief arrested Woodard, On charges of disorderly conduct. At the bus stop and later in jail, the police chief beat him and jabbed his eyes with a billy club, blinding him. The next day, a local judge found him guilty as charged, and though he asked to see a doctor, the authorities did not get him one for several more days. By the time he was finally transferred to an army hospital, it was too late to save his eyesight. He was blind for the rest of his life. The NAACP brought the case to the attention of President Harry S. Truman, a Midwestern moderate who was incensed to learn that authorities in South Carolina had taken no action in the maiming of an American soldier. He ordered the Justice Department to investigate, based on the fact that Woodard was in uniform at the time he was beaten and that the initial assault occurred at a bus stop on federal property. But the federal trial ran into caste obstructions in South Carolina. The local prosecutor relied solely on the testimony of the bus driver who had called the police. The defense attorney hurled racial epithets in open court at the blinded sergeant. And when the all-white jury returned a not-guilty verdict for the police chief, the courtroom broke out in cheers. It had been revealed during the trial that Woodard had apparently said yes instead of yes, sir, to the police chief during the arrest. This, combined with the elevated position his uniform conveyed, was seen as reason enough for punishment in the caste system. After the trial, the police chief, who had admitted to jabbing Woodard in the eyes, went free. Woodard went north to New York as part of the Great Migration. The northern white judge assigned to the case lamented, I was shocked by the hypocrisy of my government. The message was clear to those whose lives depended on staying in their place or appearing to. If a Negro rises, he will be careful not to become conspicuous, lest he be accused of putting on airs, and thus aroused resentment, wrote the ethnographer Bertram Schrieker. Experience or example has taught him that competition and jealousy from the lower classes of whites often form an almost unsurpassable obstacle to his progress. It was largely black efforts to rise beyond their station that set off the backlash of lynchings and massacres after Reconstruction following the Civil War, that sparked the founding of the Ku Klux Klan and the imposition of Jim Crow laws to keep the lowest caste in its place. A white mob massacred some 60 black people in Ocoee, Florida, on Election Day in 1920, burning black homes and businesses to the ground, lynching and castrating black men and driving the remaining black population out of town after a black man tried to vote. The historian Paul Ortiz has called the Okoe Riot the single bloodiest election day in modern American history. It occurred amid a wave of anti-black pogroms in more than a dozen American cities, from East St. Louis to Chicago to Baltimore as black Southerners arrived north during the Great Migration, and many tried to make their claims to citizenship after risking their lives in the Great War. One thing these rampages had in common. The mobs tended to go after the most prosperous in the lowest caste, those who might have managed to surpass even some people in the dominant caste. In the 1921 riot in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a mob leveled the section of town that was called Black Wall Street, owing to the black banking, insurance, and other businesses clustered together and surrounded by well-kept brick homes that signaled prosperity. These were burned to the ground and never recovered. Decades before, in the early 1890s, a black grocery and a white grocery Sat across the street from each other at an intersection just outside Memphis, Tennessee. The black store, known as People's Grocery, was a cooperative that was thriving even as the walls of Jim Crow closed in. Its owner, Thomas H. Moss, was an upright figure in a three piece suit and bow tie with a side part in his close cropped hair, who did double duty delivering mail and running the grocery. Both he and his grocery store drew the resentment of his white competitor. One day, two boys, one black and one white, were playing marbles in front of people's grocery and got into an argument. The white boy's father began to thrash the black boy, at which point two clerks from the black grocery ran out to rescue him. A crowd gathered, and tensions rose. Seizing on the discord and angered by the competition from the black store to begin with, the white grocer, William Barrett, showed up at People's Grocery looking for one of the store clerks who had intervened in the fracas. But the clerk on duty, Calvin McDowell, refused him any information. The white grocer struck McDowell with a pistol for his perceived insolence McDowell managed to wrestle the gun from the white grocer and fired, barely missing him. Under the protocols of the caste system, it was the black store clerk who was arrested. Though he was released, the caste system had only begun to stir. The black owner, Thomas Moss, tried to prepare for it. He stationed several black men to guard the grocery. On March fifth, 1892, six white men stormed People's Grocery. The black grocer and his supporters fired upon the intruders, wounding two of them. The white men happened to have been the sheriff and five men he had just deputized. After the shooting, a hundred more whites were deputized to hunt down the black store owner and other black men he knew. The three black storekeepers, the owner Moss and the two clerks, McDowell and Will Stewart, were arrested. In the early morning hours of March ninth, 1892, a mob stormed the jail and tortured and lynched all three men. The next day, a white mob ransacked people's grocery, and within months, Moss's white competitor bought the store for pennies on the dollar. One of Moss's dear friends was the journalist Ida B. Wells, and this lynching is what set her on her lifelong mission to awaken the country to the terror of lynching. A finer, cleaner man than he never walked the streets of Memphis, Wells wrote. He was murdered with no more consideration than a dog. The colored people feel that every white man in Memphis who consented in his death is as guilty as those who fired the guns which took his life. The irony of The Quest of the Lowest caste is that it is the very uprightness embodied by Moss, attested to by Wells, and applauded when shown by most every other group, that incites the greatest backlash. The effort to escape stigma is what can trigger the punishment. Moss was murdered for running a better business than his white competitor, wrote Nathaniel C. Ball, A historian at the Hooks Institute at the University of Memphis. McDowell for forgetting his place in the hierarchy in the white world he lived in. And Stewart for being in the wrong place at the wrong time.
4: Uh, That is our first audio segment. We did not conclude at the end of a chapter. We're still in chapter 15. Uh, We will resume. The segment reads The Lowest Cased was to remain in its place like an ill-fitting suit that must constantly be altered, seams and darts re-sewn. The metaphors just keep on coming. Stacks and stacks of metaphors. Woo! Lame. One of the lamest books that we've read. Uh, so the number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate she concluded with Ida B. Wells Barnett black journalist on uh, her outstanding efforts to counter racism white supremacy crusade for justice her autobiography but I think it's so important uh to B. Wells Barnett, she admitted that initially she, too, had been confused about these lynchings. She said that she believed what racists had said, like they would lynch and castrate a black person. Be like, Oh, yeah, he must have did something. He stole a loaf of bread or, you know, he tried to rape a white woman. He did something. And she said it wasn't until her friend was lynched when it was like, oh, man, I have been. Brain trash. Like this is not what's happening at all. Like I think that's so important because even now, October 2020, victims of white supremacy, gusty included, we greatly minimize how powerful the system of white supremacy is and the impact it has on our thinking, emotions, logic. Exhibit A: this book. Ooh. Extra. Lame. The number again is 720 716 7300. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, getting the emails in the email address untiljustice at com get these in as we proceed email number one chapter 14 miss wilkerson's question of when should we talk to our children about racism and the tamir rice antidote right after just shows that we should talk to our offspring about racism as soon as possible and maybe not wait for the n-word to be dropped or for there to be some other overt racist act It's very noteworthy that several of the most gruesome whippings and tortures were of black males defending their attempted wives and offspring from physical violence at the hands of an enslaver or overseer. Whites practicing racism being compared to the wind blowing metaphors. I take that as if it's as natural for whites to practice racism as it is for the wind to blow. I'm sure that wasn't the author's intent. Chapter 15, the author appears to make it seem like the French's natural response to fellow black soldiers in World War I was of equality and that American soldiers taught them how to be racist and mistreat the black soldiers. I believe that is a stretch, and how? In order to insert the so-called non-racist white people who were corrupted by the U.S. The French were mistreating black people before World War I. They owned Louisiana at one point and practiced slavery dating back to 1706, if I'm not mistaken. Is Haiti, does that exist? Haiti? Do white people in France have anything to do with... (laughs) I'm not a historian. I'm sorry. Let's proceed. Uh, They didn't need a lesson on mistreating black people. Say it twice. They didn't need a lesson on mistreating black people. Christ in hell. We read Wretched of the Earth. I think France Phenom might have something to say about white people in France and whether or not they practice racism. Continuing later in the text, the author talks about whites nominating two black soldiers ...who were killed and received a Medal of Honor recommendations. Whites can do the basic level of so-called admiration of a non-white person... ...and it gets praised for it many decades after. Harry Truman was so-called incensed because an American soldier was brutalized... ...and authorities hadn't taken proper action. He ordered a federal investigation because the black soldier was assaulted while in uniform and the assault happened on federal property a uniform is more worthy of the pursuit of justice than black people in a system of white supremacy Gus that's me you say something to the effect of white people can ruin your life in about five minutes we did a whole program titled that 2000. 2012 summer of 2012 we did a whole broadcast on that Uh, a game of marbles between a black child and a white child turns into three lynchings Uh, and we will stop there because we didn't get that far Uh, but that is one person the email address again until justice at gmail dot com excellent notes observations uh, star six one if you have comments to share, all of the folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Uh, feel free if you have insight to share. Can I be heard? Greetings, Henry in Chicago.
0: All right. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, the first part of the reading uh, uh, with the... Uh, with the black male and his, uh, offspring. Um, one of the things that i put a question mark in, you know, I see this a lot about, you know, teaching a black child, respecting authority. And I, you know, I, I get kind of confused on that. It's like, what are you talking about? Respecting authority. You're talking about the authority that, you know, kills us and beats us and terrorizes us, you know, is that respect? You know, is that the authority that we have to respect, you know? So, you know, all I know is my father taught me how to survive authority. I don't know about respecting, but surviving authority was one thing that he did, you know, teach me how to do. So, um, the father from West Africa telling his son he couldn't be a child because he's in America, um, I thought that was pretty interesting considering uh, it kind of gives you a signal that, you know, that racism is only in America, not in Africa. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And it also made me think about um, Marcus Garvey. Uh, I guess apparently when he was in Jamaica, he used to have a, uh, he used to have a a, a white, uh, a white girl as his, uh, as his friend and, I think his father told him he had to stop seeing her because I guess the, the, the white family of that white little girl was, uh, <laughs> didn't want this black child being, you know, being in their daughter's presence. So, uh, I remember that story. Uh, and, and I think this is when Marcus Garvey said that was like his first experience with the racism. Um, and you know, me personally, my experience of white people trying to get into your conversations in restaurants—I've experienced that multiple times. And it's it's just so interesting with the with the situation uh, in the book where he talked about the uh, the uh, uh, the black male and the son, you know, and the white woman trying to interject, you know, with the boy crying, and it just reminded me of. Many instances where I'm at a restaurant with another person and it's just some, and it's always a white one for some reason or another who hears our conversation and they have to interject their own racist, you know, commentary or whatever they have to do. So, you know, I, I definitely, I definitely can resonate with that. Um, The white engineer and the black engineer story uh, sounds like, uh, sounds like the story uh, of, uh, good white people. So <laughs> that's what I kind of got out of that. You know, there's, there's such things as good white people. Um, the black babysitter, baby, babysitting white children, uh, very dangerous job. You know, I mean, BGQ, he may need the money, but Uh, As a black man, I would not be riding around with white children, especially in an area where there's a lot of white people. Um, That is a very, very dangerous job. Uh, I'd rather be um, plucking minefields uh, from World War II, uh, playing football or some other dangerous job. But yeah, yeah, that's very dangerous. And uh, you just mentioned about the French soldiers being friendly to black people and France's history of, you know, of colonizing and enslaving, you know, Haiti and, and Algeria and, you know, other parts of Africa where they, you know, uh, brutalized and terrorized colon- colonizers. But what was so interesting, too, was uh, one of one of uh, France's first black generals— uh, I think his name was uh, uh, Thomas Alexandri Dumas. He was actually one of the first French generals in Napoleon's army. Uh, and then there's a book called The Black Count that talks about his life. And what's so interesting is this this guy uh, who was a, who was a, whose mother was black, but his father was white. So cowbell on that one. But he couldn't even get uh, he couldn't even get a, a pension, uh, which uh, all of the French generals used to get pensions, but uh, he, did, he didn't get one. So, <laughs> so there's so much for, you know, France taking care of its black soldiers and, and in particular the black general that they had. So, uh, but uh, that's all I have in my life.
4: Liberté, that's what they say. They even got complaints right now. I just saw that with the... Uh... The Rona, they had lockdowns and they didn't go out to put your mask on, social distance. They didn't go out in the rich part of Paris. They went out to the outskirts where the dark people are to, yes, we got COVID measures. got to be inside, lockdown. The Black Count, more reading material, The Black Count. Uh, Let's see. Other folks who dialed in, much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Other folks who dialed in. With a hand up, comments, questions, observations to share. Line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir.
6: Greetings, Gus. Greetings to everyone. Uh, I kind of like just tuned in uh, uh, around the part where um uh, the uh the lynching was being described with the uh, store owner uh but uh the reason why i i'm i'm reporting now is because uh, someone apparently uh uh asked the question or, or it's extremely ironic that someone asked the question on mr fuller's program about uh what is his thoughts on the on the differences or in or similarities between caste and class in the system of racism, white supremacy. And I thought his, uh, his thoughts on that question was uh, interesting. Uh, Anyone that wants to hear it, just, you know, just tune into his program on, uh, on Tuesdays, on Tuesdays, on the axis on Tuesdays, but you can, pick it up from his website, producejustice.com And, uh, on that, I thought it was kind of interesting on what he had to say about it. That's, that's all I have right now until I get to hear the second reading.
4: Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, let's see other folks. If you have comments, questions, observations, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, Mo in Dallas. Yes, sir. Uh,
0: yes, sir. Um, greetings. Yes. Greetings. Um, listeners and callers. Um, I started a, uh, a cast count. Um, it just seemed like something that me to distract me to do. Um, you know, I started it, um, not at the beginning. Um, I just, I recall hearing the word cast back to back, on just just several in several sentences or back to back sentences. So I have fifty-four times um, that I caught in this previous audio segment that um that the word cast was using, at least by my account. Um, I'm pretty sure it's more than that, but I caught fifty-four. Um, starting with the uh, addressing the audio segment uh, from To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, uh, I, like, in my, I guess, family, um, we believe this is the story of being black and nearby. Um, it, I, I, it's kind of, a shame we refer to it like that, but we kind of use it as a, as a, um, as a reference point to how dangerous it is to, to actually be, um, a black male. Um, uh, Tamir Rice playing with a pellet gun um and was shot. Um and um I, I wrote that down because uh there was a quote he was doing an all American thing and um I usually uh, relate the term all American with uh with uh, non uh non black white people uh suspected white supremacists, all American. Um it seems to go hand in hand, blonde hair, blue eyes all America. Um, uh, the, the resurgence of cast after 26, after the 2016 election, I wrote that down, but because it implies that, that before the 2016 election, that this that, that whatever system that she's referring to wasn't being enacted. And I find that inaccurate. Um, um, uh, when you're raised in a middle-class African-American, uh, when you're raised as, in a middle, as a middle-class African-American, you're keenly aware of your surroundings and you learn to trade carefully. Um, i gonna paraphrase the quote, but I think this speaks to, um, um, the way that the author thinks, um. uh, in my opinion, she acknowledges, uh, even though she was referring to the the DEA agents following her, she was acknowledging that she is aware of the system um, that she is within, and um, she is uh, treading carefully. I think this book is 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 an attempt of her to tread carefully. Um, We are told over and over in our society not to judge a book by its cover. I I chose to, to... write that particular quote down because we are told in our society, I think that, um, those words are specifically tied to, um, non-white black people. We're, we're often told, love who you want to love, uh, things like that. And I think that is, um, a part of our, 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 a part to our detriment because I don't think people in other communities are being informed in that fashion. Um, uh, um it was the utmost importance of uh to the uh to the French soldiers to mistreat black soldiers during war times. Um um I wrote that down because I according to the book, um the French upheld the black soldiers and and the American uh the US government or US military felt it necessary to inform um the French soldiers that they could not treat, um, black Americans the same as they would, uh, French soldiers. I, 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 I believe that was to, uh, kind of stifle their black self-respect. Um, if I'm to believe that well, that was the case and that the French didn't already know how to mistreat, uh, non-white black people. Um, I do think they did know how to mistreat non-white black people because, uh, people in Haiti, such as Jean-Jacques Dessalines or Toussaint Louis um, They were Haitian um, leaders, uh, war leaders if you will. Um, and, a, and a mob leveled the Black Wall Street. Uh, a mob leveled Black Wall Street. Burned it to the ground. Um, uh, I would like to, I, I would have appreciated it more and it would have been more accurate. If If the author would have written bombed it, bombed Black Wall Street to the ground I do believe this is the first time um uh, buildings on US soil were bombed and well from the sky in the United States of America and Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, they weren't just burned they were bombed um That's all I have for now to my. Life.
4: Bombing, very important. I be heard? Thomas in New York, yes, sir.
2: Um, yes, good evening, Gus. Good evening to the callers. Um, this book is whack. I really disdain this author. Um, she was arranged. Um, and this book is terrible. Uh, I can't even come up with enough words. She said, after 2016, there was an uprising. White people calling police on innocent black people. And she gave all these examples. In the last president's term, we had a white vigilante confront a black teenager on for being suspiciously black, shoot and kill him, and then they went to court and they used the defense that the teenager was using the ground as a deadly weapon and this guy got off and how is this all coming after 2016 seems like they want to try tie all the racism we've ever had in america into the last four years so they could blame it all on one person um you talk about making a scapegoat you know like this is what they're trying to do i don't know um then uh, the story with the black the white female disregarding the black male by telling the child to drink the juice at the restaurant. Man, I have experienced that so many times when I would be alone with my my children when they were really small, and I would be doing things, and white females would always interject in a way like they'd trying to tell me how to do what I'm doing. And I, you know, I have so many examples I won't go through them. But um, I just wanted to emphasize that this is the, a terrible book. I'll mute my line. Thank you, Gus.
4: Mm-hmm. Not one of my favorites either. Uh, in fact, make sure I don't forget speaking of French, man, we just read White Dog. Romaine Gary bragged about being a Frenchman. I thought he was racist. And we asked Dr. Tyler or Thomas in New York, asked Dr. Tyler Perry when he was on the broadcast this summer. And he said, oh, yeah, look at the way he talks about black people. Lots of examples. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up comments to share.
5: Good evening. Can we hear? Yes, ma'am. Good evening, everyone.
4: Yeah, this book is really, really,
5: really, really, really bad. It's terrible. Uh, (laughs) um, The thought I had, um, I think she was talking about, I think, the black engineer and the white engineer and the black engineer being, I guess, uh, who the contractor is supposed to talk to. And I think she was saying that uh, the white engineer was supposed to be like a, a good white person but to me he just came across like you know annoyed <laughs> the person keeps calling him and he's busy and he's like he doesn't want to deal with that it doesn't it didn't seem to me like he was some kind of like hero or anything like that to me anyway it was my perception um she keeps saying dominant cast, and every time she says that word it just grates on my nerves like, no. I'm like well, why is she saying that why are you saying white people what's so hard we saying white people White man, why? Why are we using these words? It just seems unnecessary. Last, um, she said something about a resurgence of caste after 2016, and I didn't know what she meant. <laughs> what are we talking about? Like, what are we talking about? Um, I feel like she's trying really, really, really hard to sell this. Cast
4: thing. I don't know what. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that. Yeah, it's a it's a terrible book. It's it's, it's pretty bad, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Mm, mm, mm. This is a tad rare. Uh, I'm trying to think back. some what are some of the books that I thought were really awful? That we, uh, The Hate You Give, uh, Black Love is a revolutionary act. Wretched of the Earth those are three awful ones Nutricide I could I forget Reigning the worst book ever most of the time when we read one of these terrible books generally it will not be everyone like oh yeah this is awful like it'll still kind of be like what this is great what are you talking about Dr. Africa tried or Pam did great work and you're just a coon Gush. You don't know what you're talking about. It is very rare for it to just be like, oh yeah, this is really bad. (laughs) uh, And that there should even be a pause. One, I do think it is important to read books that you don't necessarily enjoy or find to necessarily even be constructive. I think that is important as well, particularly a book that's going to be very popular. You're going to have it. Apparently, We are in the minority. Many, many people, victims, it seems, have read this book and think it is awesome. Spectacular job of explaining racism. So for that alone, I think it is important just to be able to process and understand uh, and to try to follow logic. And that's the other aspect or just one other component. You're always we, I think, should always be looking to strengthen our logic Reading something like this, follow logic. Is what she's saying, does this make sense? Following logic, that will never steer you wrong. Uh, Other folks who wrote in, get all of our emails in first. Let's see. All right. Chapter 14 The Intrusion of Caste in Everyday Life. Number one. The father held up his hand like a traffic officer signaling a car stop. I thought this was an example of black self-respect. I'm going to try to remember this type of response if I should encounter a similar situation. Number two, arising from the civil rights era, the black parents had legal and political recourse to shield their children from abuse or to call into account harm done to their children at the hands of the state. I do not think this is an accurate statement. Many cows broadcasts have discussed the role of white women teachers as purveyors of mistreatment of black children in the school system without any consequences. Absolutely. Number three, the professor got off his floor and only later did it occur to him that he had been taken for a delivery boy. This is the self perpetuating mischief of Caste. I think the author is minimizing the psychological damage that these continual acts of racism have on non-white victims. Number four, we're DEA. We need to know where you live, how long you will be in Detroit. This was the thievery of Caste. The quiet mundanity of that terror has never left me the scars outliving the cuts, the metaphors just to keep coming. Even though the author is describing her experience as terror, she still minimizes it in the same sentence by describing it as quiet mundanity. Hmm. 15. Words. Always working on our use of words, how words are used. That would be three things that are always happening even when reading books that are not Very enjoyable. This one is pretty lame. Chapter 15 The Urgent Necessity of the Bottom Rung. It turns out the greatest threat to caste system is not lowercase failure but lowercase success. Success should be uh, defined within the context of the global system of white supremacy. Mr. Fuller's theory that non-white victims are the greatest threat to the system when they are engaging in constructive as opposed to non-constructive behavior may be a better way of thinking of counter-racism. Excellent. Number two, September 1918, because the one he had been given was malfunctioning. The passage on World War I may not be entirely accurate. The black soldiers were forced to fight with the French because the white American soldiers would not fight beside them. Moreover, the black soldiers had to fight with inferior French rifles because the U.S. Army refused to give them better U.S. arms. Number three, one thing these rampages had in common, mobs tended to go after the most prosperous in the lower caste. This may be evidence that non-white victims are deemed the greatest threat to racist man, racist woman, and racist child when they are engaged in constructive activities. Uh, let's see. And that's we didn't get that far yet. Stop right there. All right. I'll see if I can get in a few of my notes and then check. See if folks have any thoughts before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, The dedication for this book is not in the front. That is peculiar. Most books that I've read, the dedication is most times in the front. If not the first page, it's, you know, pretty early in the book. It's I can't even think of another book where the dedication is at the end but the dedication reads to the memory of my parents who survived the cased system. there's that word again, and to the memory of Brett, who defied it. Hold on one second. <laughs> let me do this do this properly here. I'll read it again one more time. If folks have any thoughts on that, you can share, it. but I'll read it again so you can uh, process and her deceased husband, white male Brett Hamilton so we'll do this again, correctly to the memory of my parents who survived the cased system and to the memory of Brett who defied it what do we think she means by defied take a few moments process defied it what do we think she meant what did Brett do exactly to defy the cased system while processing that I will share some of my notes and see so chapter 14 uh, the just these <laughs> words are important the chapter title of uh, 14 is the intrusion of caste in everyday life. We are in a total system of white supremacy. Melissa Harris Perry said it is the air we breathe talking about so-called environmental racism. we read a terrible thing to waste top 10. That is way beyond exponentially beyond the intrusion of caste in everyday life. Flint, Michigan, Newark, New Jersey. You can't even get a cup of water. It is the totality of your existence is going to be shaped by mistreatment. That is what we're talking about, not the intrusion of caste in everyday life. She continues this whole anecdote. There are no footnotes. It's not just I don't know who this is. Was this told to you by someone, which is fine. They do that in books. But even then, there would be some sort of citation like, oh, this is a conversation that I had with, you know, Jonathan, you know, Harris and uh, a date, August 25th, 2017, uh, you know, noted interview, something like no citation at all for all of this and this takes up a page or two uh, at least anyway uh, we've had suspected race soldiers on the program who have talked repeatedly about having their white parents and other relatives talk to them about what it means to be white at immediately like as soon as they could talk function walk all of that they were getting the rules about racism white supremacy they do not wait to explain that to their offspring Uh, you heard one of the more dramatic scenes from to kill a mockingbird at the beginning of this broadcast that's what I mean about this is not someone who's ignorant about racism you have examples that you're citing about oh yeah black males are victims of sexual violence as well but you just reduce it to black females and what I said now does May Ella sound like a white woman who's endangered because of racism? She lived. Lied on the stand, didn't go to jail and got a conviction for her lie. Come on. Uh, Atticus Finch is racist. Let's see. Uh, Let's see. I'm all for eating vegetables uh, with this anecdote Uh, and I don't do juice. Uh, That is totally not constructive. I think that is one thing from the worst book ever. Nutricide, Uh, not doing all those juices, Uh, whole fruits, vegetables, get your fiber in like shouldn't have fruit juice. That's probably why that race soldier white woman came over there. Oh, no forget eating your vegetables, drink your juice, have some more. Can we get an extra juice for right here? Let's get two or three of those over here. Get you some cavities and high fructose corn syrup. Uh, I do think that is black self-respect. Halt, white woman, go back to your table. It's my child, but I mean, that's, that's what I mean. They understand power. You're not a parent. That's why I think Mr. Fuller says we're tempted father, attempted mother. You don't qualify. White people are not ignorant about that. Let's see. And I mentioned last week she called attention to a blonde haired woman last week. She did it again this week. I'm just pointing out she's not if anybody else is catching her making that distinction where the hair color is mentioned for anybody else in the book, except a blonde haired white person. Those are the only people that get that special. We got to make sure to include this is a blonde dominant cased member. I think that is noteworthy. Um, she mentioned something really bothered me she says the woman had crossed so many boundaries it was hard to process something had made her feel entitled enough to, center, to enter into the private space of people she did not know and veto a father's decision regarding his own son this was Oakland bright blue home of Huey and Tupac She is not in the habit of mentioning anybody in this book on a first name basis. Huey P. Newton has a doctorate, unless I'm misinformed. Maybe you don't have to call him doctor, but I don't even think enough people are that familiar that they would immediately think Huey P. Newton. There are other prominent uh, Hueys, Uh, Huey Long, I think, Louisiana, Uh, Huey from the Boondocks, Huey from the Cartoons lots of Hueys Uh, and just I don't think they were I mean I could be misinformed maybe she and Tupac are homies maybe they were kicking it maybe she's on a hidden death row track I don't know maybe she and Huey P. Newton kicked it I don't know I don't think she knew them on a first name basis and the fact that nobody else in this book that we've read thus far is mentioned on a first name basis that like really bothered me like Who are you to be talking to these folks like you're your friends and they passed away and Dr. Huey P. Newton. He does have a PhD like, that just really, if I'm wrong, you can call me on that. Like it's not incorrect. Many people reference Tupac on a first name. Baple. This is a formal text, but okay. What about Huey P. Newton? Continuing. Not the first time this, uh, The hate you give also in the running for worst book ever also has some disparagement for Huey P. Newton. Uh, Let's see. She says in uh, Oakland, it's common phrases, gender, nonconformity and microaggressions. That type of number one, the first one, I don't know what that has to do with what we're talking about. Even if it's dominant case and all that nonsense, racism, white supremacy, what does that have to do with gender? Nonconformity conflation and then microaggressions we just find lots and lots of ways to get away from saying racism anyway of uh, euphemisms and pussyfooting cased dominant cased microaggressions prejudice bigotry we just got more and more buckets of terms buckets and buckets of terms to get away from calling things what they are uh let's see she continues later in this chapter every day across America wherever two or more are gathered Caste can infect the most ordinary of interchanges catching us off guard disrupting and confusing and potentially causing mayhem for anyone in the hierarchy that is I mean that right there is the type of paragraph where I get close to saying oof we have got a new champion for worst book ever like are you flipping serious (laughs) like number one You don't need to have two people present. I just told you, if it's one person present and you go to your tap in Flint, that is white supremacy, racism. And there are billions of examples. You don't even have to have a white person present. Next portion of the nonsense, then that's just like one sentence. That's not a paragraph. That's not a page. That's one sentence chock full of illogic and nonsense. And with all of this, I have to be leaning to think maybe this is all deliberately so. Just a campaign to trash Trump on the sly and get us to vote. Cast a vote for Kamala Harris, who is a victim of the case. That's like, get out of here, man. Uh, so the lameness of this one sentence continues. Case can infect the most ordinary of interchanges. We got another metaphor catching us off guard us so this is again that general white people non-white people everybody white people are not caught off guard by racism white people are not caught off guard by racism i put the sign up outside of town that says no niggers how am i surprised about that come on isabel Wilkins, like lame uh disrupting and confusing and potentially causing mayhem for anyone in the hierarchy. So Harry S. Truman, tell me what mayhem he encountered by finding out that this black soldier was blinded. Mayhem? Really? Lame and deliberately so. Uh the doorbell rang at the home of an accountant from the dominant case. This is where when our female caller was just talking about every time she says that I'm just saying <sighs> we're working away from truth every time I don't even know if this is a white person I mean are we talking about a dominant case Indian person like who are we talking about? Can't even be accurate in our descriptions uh duh, 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 uh. The male problems, I again thought, wow, we are at least on time. Like as lame as this book is, we are supposed to be reading it. Gus T just had the same trouble opening the mailbox or the white man came out and accosted me and was going to shoot me down and everything I thought. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the, I agree with the folks who assessed the situation where black female engineers supposed to be in charge. And then the white person keeps calling like she's messing. With she's doing this wrong. Uh, one, we talk about that almost weekly on neutralizing workplace racism Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific. I'd better nickel it'll come up tomorrow. And I agree. This is not an example of a good white man. Like me being annoyed that you don't like that. We have a Negro in charge of this project. I mean, it would have maybe been something like, do you have a problem with a black person being in charge? even then I wouldn't have said you're not John Brown, but okay. But I mean, he didn't even do that. Just you calling and annoying me every five seconds. And then you just thought to call and annoy her after me. Like, how does that make you a good white person? You have the power to stop this. Totally. Like you have one more time to call and we're finding a new contractor. White people know how to solve problems. Like immediately. Immediately. Come on. Let's see. Oh, yeah. I highlighted it. I tweeted it. This is, It's a whole lot of these like we could easily get to the end of this book and have a brand new champion for a lamest, worst book ever. Easily with sentences like with the resurgence of caste after the 2016 election. Pause. <laughs> like, come on, Isabel. You work for the New York Times. For more than a decade, either I'm supposed... I can't even do that. I was going to try and say, maybe she's just ignorant. Maybe she didn't know. They threatened old Obama and plotted to kill him. And maybe she just didn't know. Maybe, you know, she's ignorant, doesn't have what... (sighs) Come on! She got a Medal of Honor for President Obama. I'm sure they had to go through all kinds of... Like, come on. You deliberately put this no-nonsense trash out... Uh, to say that this will help save us. That's what Oprah Winfrey said. Reading this will help save us. Are you flipping serious? <sighs> it's man. side is really bad, though. It This book doesn't have misspellings. side is really bad. I don't know if it'll take that, but whew, it is really close. Uh, yeah, Thomas City, they've been calling the police on black people for a long, long time. iPhones are a little bit better now so we got like HD quality but this is nothing nothing new. The way she's presenting it isn't even new. It's just really sloppy and inaccurate. Uh, let's see. Deliberately so I gotta think like ugh. Uh, oh yeah this is another one. These intrusions of cased would seem to harm the targets more than anyone Now even writing it like that again we're falling into well maybe it does harm the dominant case members too yeah that engineer he was bothered on the phone white people are harmed too get out of here isabel wilkerson you can do much better than that given the widely publicized attacks and shootings of black citizens at the hands of police george zimmerman i didn't think he was even a police officer Ahmad Arbery. I didn't think <laughs> most Americans know by now that calling the police on a black person can carry life and death consequences. So that would mean white people aren't ignorant about all this. That would also mean they're not unconscious, unawares, none of that, right? That would seem to contradict some of what you've even some of the titles of her chapters that have unconscious bias and the rest. Uh, let's see. Oh, and she called them frivolous calls squander public resources. I said, pause right there this is supposed to happen according to what we read in James Lowen's sundown towns the police terrorizing black people that is deliberate it is by design make the negros feel unwelcome you are not supposed to be here again that's not unconscious that is that's why we get out here and say four more years that's why law and order is such an effective platform and again Am I supposed to sit here and pretend that Isabel Wilkerson, New York Times journalist for a long time, doesn't know all this? Next, let's see. Oh man, and then the tacky, you're going to come with incorrectness and then tacky metaphors? She says, beyond that, when any citizen is disrupted in the midst of everyday life and responsibilities, it is, in fact, a societal disruption, a tear in the daily workings of human interaction. Like, really? <laughs> All this flowery language, like, if you just need to sell a book, you can write about a lot of things. You could Even this could be better. The warmth of other suns, like, if this was a task from racists. Wow. Uh, let's see. The whole incident she describes where the DEA stops her uh, on her trip from Chicago, Pam, uh, Dr. Welsing uh, to Detroit. She says, I was in a suit like everyone else. Coach bag slung over my shoulder. Uh I was reminded there is a victim of racism who, non black, non white victim, she was terrorized out in public shopping and she said, I'm going to have to get much better clothes. And other victims of racism that heard this response, just like, wow, I don't know. Like, I guess you could, you know, get tailor made everything and get Gucci bag and all the Gucci bags and all the rest of it, but. I don't know. I see a lot of black Johnny Cochran said he had on a full suit and he was stopped by enforcement officials. They made him get out of the car in front of his children at gunpoint. Like he didn't say he had on like some rags that he got from a hand-me-down store and some sloppy jogging, jogging pants. Like that's not what he said. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, she continues with this incident, uh, the dehumanization the, the of it. Totally get. Uh, but even the languaging of this, she said the bus was filled with business people, white people, or should I say white business people? I thought that was important just for context. But I also thought, didn't they just talk about that scandal? Uh, where it was trillions of dollars being traded on the so-called black market, where they're laundering money. These are the scoundrels that you're riding with in business class. That Let me get on here and launder this opioids. All right. Voting for Trump when I get off to that by mail. All right. Look at this Negro on here. She's probably smuggling weed and heroin. And I'm like, get out of here, man. Uh, let's see. If not, Jeffrey Epstein and the rest of them raping children. Let's see, then business class. Uh, Let's see. Oh man, wait a minute, slow down. She says, okay. The other passengers glared at me and two agents, blah, blah, blah. I was exactly like them. No, no, no. (laughs) That is absolutely not true. We are in a system of white supremacy. If you are classified as not white, if the, and she said this time she didn't say dominant case. She said white people, business class white people. If that's true, you are not just like them. Even if these are the exact white people who are money laundering and raping children and Jeffrey Epstein's closest homies. No, you are not like us. And what is it that said they can show you better than I can tell you. And I think she got a demonstration. But she can I was exactly like them a frequent flyer on business like anyone else on the bus early on a weekday morning having just flown into a major American city and needing to focus on the work that I like them was there to do man white identification cowbell like so many this is just like this is all one sentence that I just read that was just one sentence okay. How many times I was just like them? I was just like them. I was just like them. No, no. Even in the sense of we have the same status, I have the same amount of money, I have the same amount of person. No, no, that's not it at all. And even if you want to jump beyond that, who are they to aspire to be equal to? Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Surely we can aspire to be better than equal to that. Don't minimize that. But beyond that, no, you are not just like them. And stating that over and over again, I think now think if you're 20 and you're reading this book because they got lots of young people. They spent the summer yelling in the street and Oprah told us this book will save us. Ava DuVernay. Oh, that's the homie. She's making a movie of this. Oh, we got to read this. This will help us understand racism. Oh, it's not racism It's cased. Oh, okay dominant oh okay oh and then white friends <laughs> we got the whole nine let me continue when you are raised middle class and born to a subordinated caste in general and african-american in particular you are keenly aware of the burden you carry and you know that working twice as hard is a given john henryism and she started that when you are raised middle class a so-called white person that's born middle class Do they think all this? Mr. Fuller says no using the uh, class thing. That's just confusing. Then she gets down that. She says, you know, growing up that you cannot get away with things that your white friends. This is maybe more white identification on one page than we've had in the book club in a long time. Everything I just read is all on the same page (laughs) in chapter uh, 15, 14. Sorry make sure I'm giving out the correct all this yeah all this in chapter 14 I didn't grow up with white friends I'm a victim of white supremacy she's a victim of white supremacy but I am saying I did not grow up with white friends I had white schoolmates white classmates and that's how they would be referenced not my white friends cowbell Mm -mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm. she said Things changed somewhat when she started taking notes. Man, we say every Friday, take notes. Documentation is important. That can be a weak response, but wow, it can be super powerful. Uh, Let's see. She says, yet humans size up and make assumptions about other humans based on what they look like many times a day. We prejudge complicated breathing beings in ways we are told never to judge inanimate objects. All this wee wee, we, the general generalizations. Some of this sounds a lot like rhetorical uh rhetorical ethic, doctor Marimba Ani. Uh this is not about prejudice, all those okay. the bigotry, prejudice, microaggressions, just palomola. That's not what this is about. This is about mistreating people on what she says is arbitrary and I say it's not mistreating people on the basis of color that's what this is and being most specific individuals who classify themselves as white mistreating everyone in the known universe whom they say is not white that is what is happening on the planet not prejudice and assumptions that's not the problem at all Everybody does make assumptions. Everybody doesn't practice racism, white supremacy. Uh, let's see. She references W.E.B. Dubois a lot as though this is someone who was not writing and talking like 100 years ago. I think there's a lot of scholarship on Dubois already. Like, is this supposed to be fresh? And new? it's almost 2021. Like, let's see. Uh, we already talked about the French. Uh, we talked about Harry S. Truman in Nixon's piano. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, who also wrote race matters. Uh, and he talked about how every president uh, practiced white supremacy, racism in different forms, including Truman. You can go back and check that out. 2010. He was on the program. Let's see. Uh, oh, and I had one note and then we can do se- uh second audio segment. One note. Whew, I'm looking at that dedication. <laughs> to the memory of my parents who survived the K-System and to the memory of Brett, her dead white husband who defied it. Like, if I was a parent, if I was her parent, I'm not sure how I would feel about that dedication. Like, The note, uh, oh, this is about Mr. Truman, him being shocked uh, with this soldier being blinded. Uh, Richard Kluger Simple Justice The History of Brown B Board of Education and Black America's Struggle for Equality the attack on Woodard and other black veterans returning from the war so alarmed President Truman that in 1948 he issued two landmark executive orders 9981 9- 9- 8- banning segregation in the armed forces and 9980 9- 9- 8- ending segregation in the federal government neither of these would seem to do anything about black veterans being mauled, terrorized, and in some cases killed when they returned from the war. Maybe I'm ignorant. Mr. Fuller even talked about returning from the Korean conflict and how he had a very similar response or exchange uh, when he came back. His mother was dying, and he got the exact same treatment. "Nigra, move. I don't care about you, mom. Anybody else? Nigra, move." soldier Nick we're talking about his mom is passing away anywho second audio segment uh, we will get started if you have additional comments thoughts make a note we should have ample time to share uh, this is Isabel Wilkerson's extra lame book I'm going to read that dedication one to the memory of my parents who survived the caste system and to the memory of Brett who defied it Context of White Supremacy. We will get to audio segment number
1: two. The lowest caste was to remain in its place like an ill-fitting suit that must constantly be altered, seams and darts re to fit the requirements of the upper caste. Going back to the enslavers who resented displays of industriousness and intellect, in the people they saw themselves as owning. When slaves earned money, they became vain and arrogant, wrote the historian Kenneth Stamp, and felt more independent. They were not to be credited for their ideas or innovations, even at the risk of progress for everyone. Crediting them would undermine the pretext for their enslavement, meaning their presumed inferiority in anything other than servitude in the summer of 1721 an epidemic of smallpox one of the deadliest afflictions of the era besieged the city of boston it sent stricken people into quarantine red flags signaling to all who might pass god have mercy on this house Cotton Mather was a Puritan minister and lay scientist in Boston and had come into possession of an African man named Onesimus. The enslaved African told of a procedure he had undergone back in his homeland that protected him from this illness. People in West Africa had discovered that they could fend off contagions by inoculating themselves with a specimen of fluid from an infected person. Mather was intrigued by the idea Onesimus described. He researched it and decided to call it variolation. It would become the precursor to immunization. And the holy grail of smallpox prevention for Western doctors and scientists, wrote the medical ethicist and author Harriet A. Washington. During the 1721 outbreak, Mather tried to persuade Bostonians to protect themselves with this revolutionary method, but did not anticipate the resistance and rage, the horrid clamor, that arose from Bostonians. The idea sounded outlandish to them. They feared it could spread smallpox all the more, and they also wanted nothing to do with a practice that had come from Africa and had been suggested by an African slave. Physicians dismissed the procedure out of hand, and resented being told by a gaggle of ministers that Africans had devised the panacea they had long sought, Washington wrote. Rage turned to violence when someone hurled a lighted grenade into Mather's house. Mather escaped serious injury, but wrote that he could see no difference between adopting the African solution for smallpox and using the Native Americans' antidote for snake venom which the colonists had readily taken up. Only one physician, Zabdiel Boylston, was willing to try the new method. He inoculated his son and the enslaved people he owned. In the end, the epidemic would wipe out more than 14% of Boston's population. But of the 240 people that Boylston had inoculated, only six died one in forty, as against one in seven people who forewent inoculation. By 1750, vaccinations based on the method introduced by Onesimus would be standard practice in Massachusetts and later in the rest of the country. What is clear is that the knowledge he passed on saved hundreds of lives and led to the eventual eradication of smallpox wrote the author Aaron Blakemore. It remains the only infectious disease to have been entirely wiped out. For his contribution to science, Onesimus does not appear even to have fully won his freedom. What little that is known is that Mather grew sour on him, and Onesimus managed to buy partial freedom by paying Mather money toward the purchase of another slave. He had gone well beyond what would have been expected of a man of the lowest caste, and, as often happens, does not appear to have reaped the rewards for a role that was beyond his station. Instead, the rewards and privileges flowed from upholding the caste order. Doing so could boost the prospects of those who knew to stay in their place. The more conspicuous, the better. Two centuries after Onesimus's day, the Jim Crow regime would make a single exception to its iron law of segregation between blacks and whites. It was for black maids who had shown themselves sufficiently faithful to be entrusted with the care of white children. These women alone could ride in the whites-only section of a train or bus if they were out taking care of a white child this exception served several purposes. It enshrined the white child as the ticket to a first-class seat for a black person. It reinforced the servile role, the natural place of the subordinate caste. It elevated the black nursemaid by fiat of the dominant caste. It made domestics superior to even the likes of the great orator Frederick Douglass, who was once reduced to sitting on top of cargo on a train journey. It protected the children of the dominant caste from enduring for a single trip, the taint and discomforts of the colored car. And it reminded everyone in the subordinated caste that they would only rise with the permission of the dominant caste and on its terms, and only as long as they kept the role assigned them. They were to be given no quarter, no latitude to imagine themselves in any place other than the bottom rung. From Reconstruction to the Civil Rights era, Southern school boards spent as little as one tenth the money on black schools as for white schools, openly starving them of resources that might afford them a chance to compete on level ground. School terms for black students were made shorter by months giving them less time in class and more time in the field for the enrichment of the ruling caste. In hiring black teachers for segregated schools during Jim Crow, a leading Southern official, Hoke Smith, made a deliberate decision. When two Negro teachers applied to a school, to take the less competent. It was a nakedly creative way to cripple black prospects for achievement. It put black children under the instruction of the least qualified teachers. It passed over the brightest, most accomplished applicants, in fact, punished excellence, while elevating the mediocre in a purposeful distortion of meritocracy. All of this created dissension in the lower caste over the patent unfairness and worked to crush the ambitions of those with the most talent. In these and other ways, the caste system trained the people in the lowest caste that the only way to survive was to play the comforting role of servile incompetent. The caste system all but ensured black failure by preempting success. In a caste system, there can be little allowance for the disfavored caste to appear equal, much less superior at some human endeavor. In the early years of the Third Reich, the Nazis made a point of excluding Jews from any position or circumstance in which they might outshine Aryans. This extended to classrooms in which the Berlin Gestapo went to the trouble of ordering that everything must be done to put an end to the appearance that Aryan students are receiving assistance from Jews in preparing their exams. These were the ways that irrespective of the natural range of intelligence and talent arising in any human subset the people in the dominant caste were artificially propped up as superior in all things a setup for disillusionment not of their own making if one of the requirements of a hierarchy is that the lowest caste must remain the scapegoat on the bottom the culture works to keep it that way by playing up the stereotypes that affirm their lowliness and minimizing indications to the contrary. In America, news outlets feed audiences a diet of inner-city crime and poverty so out of proportion to the numbers that they distort perceptions of African Americans and of societal issues as a whole. Little more than one in five African Americans, 22%, are poor, and they make up just over a quarter of poor people in America at 27%. But a 2017 study by Travis Dixon at the University of Illinois found that African Americans account for 59% of the poor people depicted in the news. White families make up two-thirds of America's poor at 66% but account for only 17% of poor people depicted in the news. These generations-old distortions shape popular sentiment. A political scientist at Yale, Martin Gillens, found in a 1994 study that 55% of Americans believed that all poor people in America were black. Thus, a majority have come to see black as a synonym for poor a stigmatizing distortion in a country that glorifies affluence. Like poverty, Crime too receives coverage out of proportion to the numbers. Crimes involving a black suspect and a white victim make up 42% of the crimes reported on television news, even though crimes with white victims and black suspects make up a minority of crimes at 10% according to the Sentencing Project, an advocate for criminal justice reform. For generations, the culture has decried the alarming rate of births among black teenagers, often accompanied by depictions of welfare dependency, even though the majority of teenage mothers of all races are unmarried and likely to require help. But one might not know from news coverage... That the rate of black teenagers giving birth has plummeted in recent decades, from 118 per 1,000 black teenagers in 1991 to 28 per 1,000 in 2017, according to a 2019 analysis by the nonprofit research institute Child Trends. This should be considered great news for society the turnabout in birth rates for black and Latina teenagers has helped bring the overall teenage pregnancy rate to the lowest levels recorded in the modern era. Yet what little media coverage there has been has tended to revert to familiar caste tropes about unemployment and poverty, language of the 1990s, rather than looking into the reasons for the historic decline. These numbers are clearly telling us something, and they do not fit caste assumptions. The long-term downward trends, the researchers wrote, may reflect that teenagers are increasingly likely to delay sex, and if sexually active, to use contraception more carefully, meaning that Black and Latina teenagers are taking precautions at a rate that is bringing them closer to the mainstream, an outcome contrary to societal expectations, and thus largely disregarded. The investment in the established hierarchy runs sufficiently deep that people in the dominant caste have historically been willing to forego conveniences to themselves to keep the fruits of citizenship within their own caste. After the Supreme Court outlawed segregation in public schools, in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. The white-run school board in Prince Edward County, Virginia, delayed integrating as long as it could and then shut down the school system entirely rather than allow black students into classrooms with white students. The county had no public schools for five years, from 1959 to 1964, forcing parents of both races to find alternatives for their children. Local whites diverted government funds to private academies for white students, while black parents, whose tax dollars were now going to the white students, had to make do on their own. Around the same time, civil rights legislation outlawed segregation in public facilities, and in response, cities in the South closed Auctioned off or poured concrete into their whites only pools, so that nobody could swim, rather than sharing the water with black people. But those in the dominant caste had the means and resources acquired over generations of collective income and wealth disparities to build private pools behind gated communities for themselves and their children, leaving the lowest caste locked out again. It is in these ways that a caste system shifts, and protects its beneficiaries. A workaround emerges, provisions are made, and the hierarchy remains intact, even in the face of challenges from the highest authority in the land. This is how a caste system, it seems, manages always to prevail. In-group, out-group tensions remain a feature of American life. When black teenagers attended a pool party in a predominantly white-gated community in McKinney, Texas in 2015, white residents called the police on them for trespassing. Afterward, as shown in a video that drew international attention, an officer who responded to the call yanked a 15-year-old girl from the sidewalk— slammed her to the ground, face down, and pinned her with his full weight. Here was a grown man with his knees bearing down on her slight, bikini-clad frame as she sobbed, helpless, beneath him. When black boys instinctively rushed to help her, the officer pointed his gun at them, and they backed away, the full power of the state treating them not as children, but as threats to society. It was a scene that would be hard to imagine occurring with a young girl from the same caste, the dominant caste, as the officer. Within days the officer resigned, but the incident demonstrated the depth of assumptions about who belongs where in a caste society. And the instantaneous walls erected and punishments meted out for breaching those boundaries, even in our era.
4: Mm. I'm going to read. I was flipping for the notes, right? I've complained about the footnotes throughout our reading of this text, right? So I was going through the notes to see if there's anything in the footnote section, which is scanty. And uh, when I went to the notes section, the acknowledgement was right next to the notes. So I was looking, trying to like, Wait a minute. what, What does that say? So I turned the page. This is what I saw. So the acknowledgements, it looks like it's maybe three, four pages, right? Uh, this is the final paragraph of the acknowledgement. And then we'll get to folks who dial in. The number is 720-716-7300. The code five six four pounds Press star 61 if you would like to participate. So the final paragraph reads I am grateful beyond language for the love and devotion of Brett Hamilton the kindest and most giving husband I could have wished for a gift from the universe many of the observations in this book first found a voice in our deeply fulfilling conversations and in our life together while it breaks my heart that neither he nor my parents live to see this culmination of what we each in our own ways sought to transcend I feel his cosmic embrace as I send this out to the world and I know that all three of them are with me now, and always. (sighs) Anyway, so if folks have thoughts uh, on that, or the dedication... Of the book and or anything that we heard in the second audio segment star 61. uh if we didn't get to hear from you at all go ahead and get a hand up immediately so that we don't have to squeeze you in right at the conclusion of the broadcast uh folks with a hand up can i be heard yes sir
6: yes this is uh Uh, Basically, it's informing me that uh, if you uh, uh, get your education through the path of what the global system of race, white supremacy uh, has laid out for white people as well as non-white victims, and you are uh, loyal uh to it, including the uh, verbiage that there are there are some um uh benefits that you can have from that, especially if you lessen the verbiage do not speak directly to uh things or or people uh, caste class instead of global system of race and white supremacy uh, is the, the honest description and white people we understand have problems with honesty and if they it's especially effective if a non-white person, uh goes along with the uh uh incorrectness or uh or the lesser of the lesser description of the terms is especially effective if a non-white person uh is in that way uh the quote-unquote husband and the comment that was made uh there is high, high uh, uh, impressions of white people who say some things that may be uh, against racism, and white supremacy, uh, such as Tim Wise. At they are they are actually without any proven uh any proven uh evidence uh they are accoladed by non-white people uh on a high level unfortunately and perhaps her dead husband is one of those type of people based on that comment that was made uh in his reference um uh, back on the first part, the first reading uh, right quick. Uh, yes, the history uh, white people have always used non-white people uh, as far as to assist them to maintain system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I can recall the war that is called the Civil War, whereas both sides the quote unquote North and South utilize non white black people in its efforts. Uh the uh wage of war in the western part of this part of the world of the concept that's called the United States, they used non white black males. Uh they were identified as the quote unquote Buffalo soldiers, uh Spanish American War. World War One. most of World War I was fought on French soil in itself. So they, they desperately needed those black males. It came from the 369th Infantry Division out of Harlem. They were nicknamed the quote-unquote Harlem Hellfighters. And uh, the white people over here did not need them at all. They literally stripped them of their uniforms. And they were made to put on French uniforms and fought on the side of the white people who are called French uh that's like I said it's not unusual locally locally as well as nationally as well as internationally uh at all uh and uh also uh, we know the French with vietnam and and we know Haiti. Matter of fact, uh, non-white black people who make up Haiti actually are still paying France, from my understanding, reparations for them for them fighting back against the white people who call who are called uh, uh, French. You know, so uh, yeah, uh, a lot of history along with that, uh, with uh, white people recruiting uh, uh, non-white black people. And uh, that's
4: all I'll say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. uh, If you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes,
5: ma'am. Yes, I did not know that the immunization was somehow, um, I guess, was influenced by African slaves. It just made me think about, like, white people. Like, what is their claim to fame apart from terrorizing people? (laughs) Um, And that is all I have to say. Thank you.
4: Mm-hmm. much obliged um, she in talking about the history of the uh, inoculations she cites the great Harriet A. Washington medical apartheid We, she talks about that in detail we read that back in 2016 in fact uh, I think this is the second time that he's been mentioned I think he was referenced uh simius. That's how you say it. I think he was mentioned in uh, packing them in earlier this year it was one of the books we read earlier this year. I think it might do either packing them in or Nutricide. But we had one of our listeners uh, reminded me like, oh, yeah, we've read that in medical apartheid. So, yep, yeah, that's why it is in the top 10 it is chock full of outstanding information. And uh, even Isabel Wilkerson gives a lot of praise to Harriet A. Washington's work, uh, medical apartheid in this yearbook. Uh, Let's see. Other folks, uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. While folks get their thoughts together, I will get in the rest of our notes. Uh, One of our Listeners, investors wrote in the enslaved African told of a procedure he had undergone back in his homeland that protected him from this illness. Life itself is not as important to racists as maintaining the system of white supremacy racism that might be on display in this year, the year of the Rona. Uh, let's see. Uh, also, the acknowledgement that I've read uh, where she thanked her husband, Brett Hamilton and all this beyond words and all the rest of it. Um, that is dated. April 20 or excuse me, April 2020 is when that's dated. Uh, just. We talked about I and I think even some others talked about, wow, this book must have been written really recently. And she's talking about social distancing in the book, which would mean some of this would have had to have been written like weeks ago, literally. Uh, and then she's taught this is dated April 2020. So, yeah, as I said, the warmth of other sons, she said she spent 15 years writing that book. It seems this book didn't take as much time to come together. And I say again, I think it shows in a non-constructive way. I think it shows. Uh, Let's see. I will get in a few of my thoughts, check in, see if anybody else has commentary, any folks commentary or.
0: I do, but I'm
4: going to quiet place. Oh, for sure. I'll get in some of my notes until we mentioned Black Wall Street the first time around I just want to make sure man we are like flawless so they have been reporting repeatedly just this week about uh, so-called Black Wall Street and the bombing right and even it was mentioned in this book minimizing uh, what happened in this event and the numbers of black people that were killed let me see if I can uh, pull up just to read a little bit of the there we go. Mass grave unearthed in Tulsa during search for massacre victims. As I said, this is just from this week. Uh, an excavation found 11 coffins in Oaklawn Cemetery, but painstaking work will be required to identify whether the remains are from black victims of the 1921 race massacre. A forensics team in Tulsa, Oklahoma, said on Wednesday that it had unearthed 11 coffins while searching for victims from the 1921 massacre, in which hundreds of black residents were killed. The mass grave was discovered in an area of the city's Oaklawn Cemetery, where records and research suggested that as many as 18 victims would be found. Painstaking work will be required to identify whether the remains are from victims of the massacre. Uh, It goes on. I posted this online. As I said, there were multiple reports just from this week alone, uh, but they've been doing all of this for a while. Uh, Hundreds and these type of purges of black entire black towns happened more than 260 times, according to Elliot Jaspin buried in the bitter waters. He was a guest on the program in 2010. We talked about his book and how he came to. Those mathematical certainties more than two sixty. Uh, let's see. She continues. Uh, so they go through all of these means to make sure that black people didn't get certain jobs. If they were going to hire a black teacher, they would take the less competent teacher. I thought that was important uh, for many reasons in terms of there is a calculated effort always. Uh, to work against the interest of black people uh, and she says all of this created dissension in the lowest caste over the patent unfairness and worked to crush the ambitions of those with the most talent in these and other ways the case system trained the people in the lowest case that the only way to survive was to play the comforting role of servile incompetent the case system all but ensured black failure by preempting success that I think is important maybe one of the few times where there's some important logic and history uh, being shared in terms of even in t- we talk about bring trashing we're going to hire the least competent black teacher as though that doesn't happen right now in 2020 if we hire a black teacher at all promoting sustaining Black incompetence and black inferiority in lots of deliberate ways. Again, that would seem to contradict what she said about this being unconscious, unbiased, through no effort of their own. I was just born here. I was just given a script and a cast. You know, this is a play. I was just casting a role. Lame. Uh, let's see. She says, the investment in the established hierarchy runs sufficiently deep that people in the dominant caste have historically been willing to forego conveniences to themselves to keep the fruits of citizenship within their own caste. Now again, we got a lot of nonsense verbiage. But, white people deliberately harming themselves, denying themselves collectively of resources in order to maintain racism and to really harm black people. That is important. Again, this would seem to contradict there being some sort of uh, ignorance or unconsciousness, uh, unawares uh, about all of this. This would seem to be, what does that say? He says dedication. And I mean, there are lots of examples of this. There are whole books that white people have written uh, about what they call welfare, about why it's substandard in this part of the world, because we don't want Negroes to have constructive resources. So forget that if that means white people have to suffer with suffer with substandard services, so be it. And NPR even did a more recent report talking about with social services, they have a metric Once it reaches about 30%, I forgot the threshold, but it's somewhere around 30% nigra. It might even be lower than that. I suspect it is, but once it reaches a certain point, like, Oh man, it becomes way more punitive, way fewer resources, way less help. Like all of this is by design and continues ongoing. Like that again, should not be minimized. Uh, in fact, We talked about the Port Chicago mutiny World War II, Lots of that in this book Uh, off the coast of California. Lots of black people killed in this explosion, lots of property damage as opposed to compensating everyone correctly. White people sat in and said, oh, no, 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 because then we'll have to compensate the Negroes' families accurately, too. As opposed to that, we'll cheat everybody. So the white people won't get paid accurately. Black people won't get played. We'll just screw everybody who was a victim of this explosion. And oh, well, but we're not going to do it correctly because then we'd have to pay a whole lot of black people accurately. We talked about that one on the cows. March 2010, the Port Chicago Mutiny. Great book. They made a movie based on that, too. Uh, but it's lots of examples of that where white people will mistreat other white people in order to harm black people. Ultimately, uh, let's see. Prince Edward County, Virginia. We've talked about that on the cows repeatedly. Uh, Mark Grogan, he was a guest two times on the cows. I said I that was as another one, even though they took public tax dollars to open up private schools for white students. Uh, and then just let black people suffer and all that. But we talked about that incident uh, repeatedly. Lots of exam. They opened a lot of those private schools. I think there's a code like uh, Academy. Any of those schools, particularly in southern areas that are like Prince Edward Academy and things like that. Check and see when it was opened. If it was opened sometime around the 60s or 70s was probably an all white facility for white people so they could stay away from Negro children. Uh, Let's see. And she could have even said that unless you're telling me Isabel Wilkerson doesn't know that it was that kind of widespread thing in terms of white people deliberately not wanting their children to be with negros. And then the schools are more segregated now than they were at this time. Right. She's got to know all that. So it could have been even more context. Uh, She continues. The McKinney pool incident, we talked about that 2015 Uh, in group. Outgroup tensions remain a feature of American life. I don't know what that means. (laughs) System of white supremacy. Again, James Lowen, he used the term race relations. All the pussyfooting and not calling things by their proper name if this was just we don't get along and we have skirmishes what they used to say the Hatfields and McCoys we've just been feuding that's not what this is this is domination and terrorism collectively globally by individuals classified as white it should be identified as such not in group out group tensions lame uh, did other folks have commentary they want to share? We have about seven, eight minutes left. Can I be heard? I hear You go. go ahead. Sir. Mm. Well, thank you, sir. Right on. Okay. Well, I,
0: uh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be brief. Um, the, um, the, the pools, um, Filling up the, the public pools with cement, and and then um, digging and creating their own pools in um, gated communities. Uh, I view that as a um, as a um, deprivation strategy. Um, it just shows that, that they had no interest in the um, well, yeah, um, suspected race. Soldiers had, no uh, intention on uh, honoring the, the, the mandate. Uh, I, I saw that as uh, just just a uh, 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 well refined dedication to hindering any sort of advancement of, of non white people. Uh, um, the uh, the birth, the teen pregnancies t- statistics, um, 118 and 1,000 um, in 1991, I believe, to the 28 and 1,000 um, in 2017. Um, I contributed that to uh, eugenics. I didn't think uh, – I think that the, the system was designed in, in such a way. Uh, um, non-white black communities were infused with eugenics. Uh, they call abortion facilities, as well as, um, um, teenagers, uh, females were also, um, kind of was, what is the phrase looking for promoted to, to receiving birth control and such. And a lot of times it would sterilize, um, females, uh, female victims, um, uh, as far as her, her, her dedication to her husband uh, i refer to a, a, a previous readings where where she went to a conference overseas and she she mentioned a um, victim of another caste system stepping down and and she felt like it, when he stepped down she was elevated i think she used her late partner in the same fashion Um, and um, as far as the cast count I've been doing um, I counted 30 times that case was mentioned in this previous reading and she's averaging about one case per minute in this previous reading Um, that's all I have on me, my line
4: one cast per minute wow Uh, Henry in Chicago, thank you for your patience, sir.
0: All right. Um, The ill-fitting suit metaphor, another metaphor out of context, or maybe I'm just not understanding it. Um, Since the Brown versus Board of Education, the, you know, uh, white people, uh, basically doing everything to uphold the system of racism, including hurting themselves and also <clears throat> Chicago uh, was brought up. Um, there is a paper you can find online. It's a dissertation called "A historical analysis of South Holland school district, One Fifty One desegregation order. And I, I read that, I read that two years ago and what it was was that, uh, South Holland is a suburb of Chicago, and it's part of District 161, which encompasses another suburb, which is uh, predominantly non-white black people. Well, apparently when the segregation order uh, came about back in the 60s, this district spent hundreds of thousands of dollars fighting the desegregation order. Matter of fact, in the paper it says that it's, it was one of the it was one. It was the only uh, district north of the Mason-Dixon line that fought the desegregation order after uh, mm. uh, after it was ruled. And these white people spend thousands. And you and, and, and was was also interesting is uh, on the compensatory call-in, There was a topic on busing, and this is what started because they refused to bus uh, black students into the white uh, schools, and they spent thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and it basically went all the way to the supreme court where they 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 forced them to you know to to desegregate and what i was you know the 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 whole point of it is, is that they almost depleted all of the resources of the school district to keep the segregation order intact so this was an example of uh of, of white people spending every last penny trying to maintain the system of white supremacy. But I thought it was a very interesting, uh, uh, dissertation in regards to that. So, uh, but uh, that's all I have. on I mean,
4: Much obliged Henry in Chicago. Excellent illustration. Uh, just learning of so many, uh, Reports like that and incidents like that where they will use everything, spend every dime to maintain and ensure the system of white supremacy. In fact, as he was because I didn't know anything about that incident until he uh, shared it with us, as Henry in Chicago was telling it, that's uh pitchfork Ben Tillman, co-founder, Clemson University, South Carolina fighting, what is it, the uh, Tigers. Uh, They said, uh, Pitchfork Ben, we will turn down all federal education money if they think we are fixing to send the first coon to Clemson University or any other public school in South Carolina. How about that? Pitchfork Ben Tillman, governor of South Carolina, and they still, it's 2021 basically, they still have not taken down nary of his statues, plural, in South Carolina. Not one. But the same thing. (laughs) Keep all the dollars. Don't care if we are in poverty and have nothing. We are not going to school with negros. That is one. I'm not ignorant about racism. That is dedication. Folks, satisfied? Anything else they need to get in the last minute before we wrap things up? Wow, book is lame. We'll assume folks are satisfied. We have a ways to go. Uh, I cannot imagine this text improving as we proceed, but. I will continue to try to use logic. Uh, I would encourage folks, if we have to labor through this, write a review. Since so many people are reading this book, I think Thomas in New York and some others said, hey, I think this book is going to be required reading. It might be right up there with the hate you give uh, colleges, especially. I don't know about high school. Maybe not. High. I don't know. It's hard for me to see high school. I don't. Yeah, I don't know about high school, but colleges. Absolutely. Uh, write a review, you know, or do A video you can record, you know, two, three minutes, whatever it is, or write something out. Uh, Amazon, you know, you can go on and write a review. Doesn't have to be super long, Uh, but just (laughs) counter racist. Using logic review to talk about some of what we have heard in the text we have read over half of it so if you've tuned in the first seven sessions hey you have read a good 60 65 percent of the text so you are qualified to speak on cased the origins of our discontent and you heard a little bit of the acknowledgement and the dedication so yeah process think on that and we'll resume next thursday Uh, We'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism, even though we heard some of that today. As I said, we will probably hear tomorrow about a black person being undermined on the job. And let me call a white, even calling the white janitor to confer and double check. I don't know if this nigger is really qualified. Did you check their resume? They can be slick, Uh, but we will be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Much obliged for everyone's participation. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. Uh, All of that said, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need our brain computer working at maximum efficiency to solve this problem. Uh, In addition to being sober, I would say let's hunker down. Uh, It was a lot. Hey, they're talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma right now and the mass graves and everything could easily be that this year. Uh, it's been lots of armed white people out causing all kinds. Of, I won't say mischief. I'll say terrorism mischief. That word was used in the text. Um, it would be a good time to be really alert if you got to go out something serious, something important life, you know, saving uh, be super alert. Head is on a swivel making sure you are in a safe environment. If anything looks like oh, a, a white person is turning up getting a little volatile might be armed. We should be thinking that they might be armed. Psh, this outing is done getting out of here. Uh, we are not taking any chances. Don't need any unnecessary risks in 2020. Uh, all of that said, we are sober. If you got to go out, you are buckled. You are super alert. If you are driving, you are not, on the cell phone. Uh, again, just doing the small things that we can to keep ourselves as safe as possible under extraordinarily dangerous conditions. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed.
2: I'm a victim, brother. A victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even
4: my conditioning has been conditioned.
1: <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the
4: weirdest place you've gotten lucky.
6: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha! In my
1: dentist's office.